Amen. Thank you, Serge. Well, it's been 11 weeks since we were in the book of Romans. I think I counted that right. 11 weeks. Can you believe that? We had our, our Reformation series. We had our Advent season. We had a few unique messages in between. I'm just glad we're back in Romans. So this week I posted on social media, this is, this is the mood. The mood for this week was, I am so excited to be back in the book of Romans. And Lord willing, we're going to stay in Romans right up till Easter time. So uh, grab your Bibles and let's go to Romans 5. Uh, how many of you guys remember where we left off last time? Yeah, some of you guys got it this morning. Well done. Romans chapter 5. And just real quick to remind you guys that the book of Romans, and I, I know we've done this a few times, and I'm sure I'll do it a few more times as we go through it. The book of Romans can be divided into five smaller books within the book. And we are getting towards the end of the second one. The first one, of course, is the book of sin, and that's where Paul really lays the foundation where all mankind, both Jew and Gentile, are condemned uh, rightfully under God's wrath. And then this, this great book of salvation comes, and we get this, this teaching which is so life-changing, justification by faith alone, right? And so we're in the book of salvation right now. What comes next is the book of sanctification, where we look at what does it mean to be dead to sin and alive to Christ? How do we, how do we live that out? And then comes the book of sovereignty, some of the most challenging passages in all of the New Testament, where we talk about uh, uh, the subject of divine election. And then lastly, the book of service, which goes from 12.1 to the end of the book, really practical instructions about what it means to live within the body of Christ, to, to live the Christian life. So today we're focused on where we left off, which is verses 9, 10, and 11. But let's back up and read from verse 1, because those first 11, first of all, I've got to remind you where we've been, but those first 11 verses are really one unit of thought, and they really deserve to be treated together. So I'm going, to, I'm going to read through quickly the first eight verses and try to remind you of some of the things we taught about on those passages, and then we'll get to our, our three verses for today. Verse 1 says this. Are you there, Romans 5? Verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we, which we stand. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So the subject of these first five verses is really that phrase you see in verse 1, having been justified by faith. Now that's just a theological way of saying having been declared righteous in the sight of God, which is an amazing thing, right? And three great truths come out of that. Number one, a past reality. Justification results in that we have peace with God. That happened when we were justified by faith. We have peace with God. His wrath that was hanging over our heads has been satisfied. Number two, we have a present reality, true fellowship with the living God. This grace in which we stand. We have, we've been given by his grace intimate access to his throne. And number three, we have a future reality. Justification means that we receive this, what we call a certain hope. A certain hope of being glorified with him someday. And then Paul makes this amazing statement. Not only do we have those things, but we can also rejoice in the midst of tribulation and suffering. Think about that. Every challenge and every trial that you and I go through is a means of sanctification in our life. And what that means is there is no uh, unnecessary suffering in the life of a believer. All of it is meant 
to produce these things in us, endurance or perseverance, right? And, and what comes from that? Character. And as we're building our proven character, what comes from that? Hope. So there is no meaningless suffering in our lives. That's something we've got to always remember. Verse 6 then says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So here we see the character of God's love, right? The character of his love for his people. For what kind of people did Christ die? Not for good people. Not for righteous people. Not for people who in their own strength were inclined towards him. Not for people who were striving to obey his commands. The text says that Christ died for helpless people. For ungodly people. He died to rescue people like you and me whose hearts were sick. They were beyond any natural cure. And so God demonstrates his love towards us. How? Why we were in this condition of sickness, a ragtag bunch of unrighteous, unworthy souls, that's when Christ voluntarily chose to go to the cross and to die on our behalf. That is an amazing truth, isn't it? That is amazing grace. So now let's finish Paul's thought as we look at verses 9 through 11 this morning. Verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So really simple what we're going to do this morning. There's five really important theological statements and promises being made in this text. We're going to walk through them one at a time in logical order, and I hope at the end of it you'll agree that the, the, the big idea, the big application in the end is we should exult in God, right? We should rejoice in him. Okay, let's take a look at number one. Look at the beginning of verse 10. Actually, before we do that, let's remind ourselves who this letter was written to in the first place. And, and the reason that matters is because if you look at verses, just these three verses, you see six times Paul says we. He says we. Verse 9, we shall be saved. Verse 10, we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, we shall be saved. Verse 11, we also exult in God, and we have now received the reconciliation. So there's a whole bunch of we's there. And so one of the the first rules in biblical interpretation is this, know who the letter's written to, right? That's really, really important. Who's the we here? It's the people in Paul's audience, and who is that? If we go back to the very original chapter where Paul has his introduction in the seventh verse, he writes, to all who are beloved of God... In Rome, called as saints. So this passage is directed at believers. All those we's are the believers. That's important to understand. Those who have been called by God as saints. What is a saint? It has nothing to do with the Catholic Church. A saint is one who has been set apart as holy for God's use, right? So understand this. Keep this in mind. Throughout our interpretation of this passage this morning... All of these statements are describing believers. These are statements and promises given to God's elect. Keep that in mind. So the first thing we notice here in verse 10 is this. We were once enemies. Every person in this room was once an enemy of God. Have you accepted that fact, by the way? Does it make you tremble just a little bit to think about there was a time in the past when you were an enemy of God? 
Now, it's easy now, if you're, if you're a Christ follower, it's easier to accept that fact now. Why? Because now we're on the other side of that, right? It, it doesn't feel quite so, so uh, heavy when we realize that we're on the other side of it. We're now a friend of God. But let me ask anybody who's here today who hasn't trusted in Christ, do you believe that, that what Paul is saying here is true? That you are an enemy of God? Even if you don't necessarily feel like it. Because I, I've, I've talked to unbelievers before, look, I, there's, I'm not hostile towards God. But positionally, Scripture tells us that you are an enemy of the living God. Positionally. Every man and every woman on this earth who lives in unrepentant sin, who is not trusted in Christ, therefore does not have an atoning sacrifice for his or her sins, which means those sins are being counted against you and the wrath of God hangs over you, you're an enemy of God. It's not about your feelings. It's about the position that God says you're in. And he says, you're an enemy of God. Understand that word there, and I have it on the screen there, and the Greek is very strong, ekthros. It doesn't mean, well, you just barely fall short of being a friend. It's a very strong word. The word refers to somebody being in the opposite camp. So if you think for a second, think about the, the story of David and Goliath, right? You've got the Israelite army on one side of the Valley of Elah, right? And you've got the Philistine army on the other Okay, so you've got God's camp and you've got the other camp, the opposite camp, the adversary's camp. Symbolically, if you don't haven't trusted in Christ, symbolically you are in the Philistine camp here this morning, an adversary, an opponent of the living God. This word is so strong that sometimes it's translated as hated or odious. So there's no mistaking what Paul is saying here about those who are outside of Christ. They're enemies of God. Now, some people try to sort of soften this verse a little bit to say, well, okay, we were enemies of God, but he was not our enemy at the time we were unsaved. In other words, we were hostile towards him, but there was no hostility coming back at us. That can't be, folks. If you look at verse 9, it says that we're being rescued from what? The wrath of God. God has wrath against the world of sinners. That's hostile anger towards the world of sinners. And folks, that's the beginning of the gospel. That is where we start. When we talk about what the gospel is, we start there, right? Too many of us were once taught in, in, in certain churches by, by squishy church leaders that really the beginning of the gospel is that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not the beginning of the gospel. The beginning of the gospel is that every one of us was born into the sin of Adam, Every one of us were inclined towards sin from the very beginning of our lives. And we continued to live in sin, thumbing our nose at God. And therefore, God and man are enemies living in opposite camps. And unless, he, unless his wrath towards us is satisfied, we have no hope. Only an expectation of eternal punishment and misery. The Bible's clear on this, guys. There's, it's not like, well, we're going to flip through here and try to find a whole different uh, uh, you know, theology of of eternity. The Bible is very clear. One day God is going to pour out the full measure of his wrath on the sinful, unbelieving world. And unrepentant sinners will be cast into what the Apostle John calls the lake of fire to be tormented forever and ever. That's, that's just a truth from the text. And that's, isn't that terrifying? Now here's the good news. That's not the end of the gospel. That's the beginning of the gospel. right? And if we don't understand that truth, understand that bad news, we really can't get to the good news. So the good news is, it's not the end. So look at what comes next after enemies in verse 10. This is our second point. 
Here we find, by the way, a brand new word. Paul has not used this word yet in his letter to the Romans. And it's a new concept, being reconciled to God. First time he lays this out. Let's define what that means. You see it on the screen there. Dictionary.com says, reconciliation is this, to become friendly with someone after estrangement. After estrangement. Or to reestablish friendly relations between two or more people. That's what God's done for us through Christ. So if the bad news is having this enemy status before God, the good news of the gospel is that estrangement, that mutual hostility between us and God, can be bridged. It can be bridged. Friendly relations can be established. These two parties, us and God, can be reconciled one to another. That's the good news of the gospel. The big question, of course, is how? How how does that take place? How does reconciliation take place? And I want you to stop for a second and just think about the impossibility of this. A perfectly holy, all-knowing, omnipresent, divine, almighty being like God being reconciled to finite sinful creatures like you and me. From our end, that's simply impossible, isn't it? That, I mean, that, that gap is too vast to be bridged. Are we so arrogant to think, and I know we do because we're human beings, especially Americans, are we so arrogant to think that somehow we can approach God and demand that we be reconciled to him? Or that we can approach God and make, say, well, I've made such a good moral impression on him that he's obligated to be reconciled to me. How arrogant. Understand who God is and understand who you are, right? That gulf is vast. Well, then how does reconciliation take place? Well, the answer we get here in Romans 5 and throughout the New Testament is this. Only God can do it. Only God can do it. Only God can rescue us from God's wrath. That's an important thing to understand. God is the one who does the seeking, doesn't he? He's the one who seeks out reconciliation with us. He is the seeker. He seeks out his people. And he graciously takes the initiative in removing the very thing which stands between us, which causes this enemy status, that causes our estrangement, our sin. And he takes the initiative to change that and to bridge that gap. This is really important. Now, I'm going to get... You guys, if you've been around... um, Oak Hill for any period of time. You know, I don't, I don't usually get geeky with the original biblical languages because I want to keep it, want to keep it simple for everybody to, to understand. But there are times when you really need to dig into the Greek when it matters. And this is one of those times when it really does matter. So I want to try to explain this to you. We talk a lot about God's sovereignty here at Oak Hill. And we come across a passage like this, we see it so clearly taught in the language that it has to be discussed. In particular, what we're going to talk about is the verbs that Paul uses in this passage that tell us how you and I are saved. So just a really quick lesson. I'm going to keep it really simple on Greek verbs. And we're going to start with what we call a tense. Now, we sort of understand what tenses are, right? Because we have tenses in English. Right? We're going to go back to, like, what, eighth grade English or something? All right. I read a book. The tense is past, Right? I'm reading a book that's present. I will read a book that's future. Easy, right? We're all, we're all, okay, good, we're on board. Greek verbs are written with a tense, but they're also written with what we call a voice. And that can be active or passive or middle. And the voice tells us something very, very important in interpretation. It tells us whether the subject of the statement is performing the action, 
right? Performing the action or the subject is the recipient of the action. They're being acted upon. They're either doing the acting or they're being acted upon. So let me give you an example. In English, we have voice, and it looks something like this. The hunter killed the bear. Aw, right? Killed is written in an active voice. Why? The subject, the hunter, performed the action of the killing. Does that make sense? It's an active voice. The hunter killed. But when we say the bear was killed by the hunter, was killed by is written in the passive voice because the subject, the bear, was the recipient of the action. Okay, so the hunter actively killed and the bear passively received the killing. I'm sure he wasn't happy about it. Make sense? Okay, good. Now look back at verses 9 and 10 in our text. Paul describes three important actions. Okay, you know, verbs are action words, right? Three important actions. Justification, salvation, and reconciliation. Would you say those are important things? Some of the most important theological concepts we have, right? Justification, salvation, and reconciliation. And in doing that, he uses five. Count them, five passive verbs. Now, why does that matter? It reminds us that it is God who is the active initiator of those things. And it's man who is passively receiving those things. Does that help you? God is active in those three things. In justifying, in saving, and in reconciling. Man simply receives them because man's in the the passive position. So you see these statements here. These are uh, two from verse 9. First of all, having now been justified. That's what we call the aorist passive. And that tells us that at a moment in the past, we were recipients of justification. We didn't do it. We received justification. Also, verse 9, we shall be saved. That's what we call a future passive. In the future, we will certainly be the recipients of salvation. Verse 10, we were reconciled to God. Again, aorist passive. At, the moment, at this moment in the past, we were the recipients of a reconciled condition with God. We didn't reconcile ourselves. God gave it to us as a gift. Also, verse 10, having been reconciled, aorist passive again. At a moment in the past, we receive the gift of reconciliation. And then again, the same thing, we shall be saved. Again, future passive. Here's the point. Who's being acted upon here? We are. We're in the passive position. The active performer here is God every single time. So again, we're born into sin. We're enemies of God. God has to be the one who rescues us from his own wrath. He's the active performer in that. He justifies, he saves, he reconciles. So Paul says in verse 11, look at the very end of the verse for a second. All that's left for us to do in being reconciled to God is what? To receive it. By the way, that's the first time in this passage we have a a verb in the active voice. That's the one thing that we do in salvation. We just receive it. Isn't that awesome? What that tells us, guys, is it's a gift. It's not something we earn. It's not something that we seek on our own. It's not something we can demand. It's not something we say, look how good I am. We simply, by grace, do what? Receive it. Thank you, Jesus. That's why we talk about sovereignty all the time here at Oak Hill, because the language of Scripture over and over again tells us who's doing the work. God is good. Now, our third point may seem just way too obvious, uh, but I'm, I'm going to talk about it briefly because Paul seems to think it's really important. It's written all throughout 
this particular passage. And it's simply this. All of these things happen because of Jesus. All of them. In fact, I'll give you a list. Five examples. Look at verse 9. Justified by whose blood? Jesus' blood. Saved from the wrath of God through who? Jesus. Verse 10. Reconciled to God through the death of who? Jesus. Saved by whose life? Jesus. Verse 11. We exult in God through who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. It's everywhere in these three verses five times. I think that's important, don't you? Five times. And the reason for this is simple. The death of Christ is the objective, historical, unchangeable, rock-solid foundation of this idea of reconciliation. It's all about him. There's no other way to bridge that gap between God and man. He is the only one who can mediate these two parties. He brings the two parties together. Why is he uniquely qualified to do that? Because he's the God-man. Fully man and fully God. Only he qualifies to be that bridge to be the reconciler, the mediator between God and man. And when Jesus died on that Roman cross, he took upon himself all the hostility that God had towards us. We talk about being enemies of Christ. All that hostility, that wrath, Jesus absorbed it in himself on that cross. All of that wrath. It's because of the cross that our our war with God is over. See, we don't think in those terms, but we were at war with God. Paul said to the Colossians, Jesus reconciled all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. The war's over. Amen. Long before you and I even came onto the scene, long before we were even born, folks, and before we even lived in rebellion against God, he had done everything necessary to break down those barriers between us and him. And the amazing thing is that he was willing to do it at the price of his own son. The most valuable thing in all the universe he was willing to do it. So if you really want to know about the grace of God, you've got to study the work of Christ, right? That's where you're going to find it. His shed blood and his death are what moved us from this category of enemy to friend, and even more than friend, to a son or a daughter of the king because of his death. So God is the active performer, and it's all through Christ. Always remember that. Now, fourthly, I want to do, what I want to do is move to what I think is really the big idea, the biggest of the big ideas in this passage, and it's this. Our salvation is assured, and we find that point being made twice, once in verse 9 and once in verse 10. In fact, underline it, highlight it, the words much more. Every reputable Bible translation ought to have that in it. Some don't. Much more. Now look at verse 9. See if you can follow Paul's logic with this. He begins, Much more than, having now been justified his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Now I admit that the sentence construction in the New American Standard is a little awkward. It doesn't read really easily. So let me get, I'm going to put the NIV on the screen just for the sake of clarity. It's not a, a, a translation that I used to teach from, but it will help you to understand what Paul's saying, it has the same meaning, and it's this. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? And what we do is we call this a reasoning from greater to lesser. Reasoning from greater to lesser. If the greater task, think about this, if the greater task was for God to send his son to die for us while we were enemies, how much easier is it for him 
to save us now that we're his friends. He's done the harder thing. Everything else is peanuts. That's not very theologically precise. <laughs> Everything else is a piece of cake. No, that won't work either. But it's a reasoning from greater or less. Same thing in, in, in verse 10. For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So again, if Christ did the harder thing, which was to die for us at a time when we were rebellious against him, when we hated him, how much easier is it for him now to live and to mediate for us? Now that we're his children, he's done the hard thing already. I'll give you a practical illustration of this. and um, I read this in, in, uh, in uh, one of John Piper's messages. He said this. He said, uh, suppose you're a kid who moves with your parents into a new neighborhood. Okay? And he chooses kids for a reason because before the Lord, we we're obviously kids, right? And during that first night, a fire breaks out in the house. And your neighbor, who we'll call Mr. Smith, he sees the smoke. He comes over. He breaks a window and he wakes everybody up. Then he crawls inside, he gets your parents off to safety, and then suddenly he hears you in an upstairs bedroom crying for help. So Mr. Smith rushes up the stairs, he plunges through the flames, he wraps you in a blanket, and he brings you out to safety. The only problem is in the process of doing that, he suffers terrible burns all over his body. Now over the next few months as he's in the hospital, you become very close friends with Mr. Smith. You're, you're visiting him often because you understand what he's done for you. And then one morning after he comes home from the hospital... You say to him, hey, Mr. Smith, would you come over to my place tomorrow and throw the football with me? Mr. Smith says, sure, I'd love to do that. But that night when you go to bed, you lay your head on the pillow, you begin to doubt. Well, well, maybe Mr. Smith isn't going to come over tomorrow. Maybe, maybe he really doesn't care about a little kid like me. And your father sits you down and he says this, you know what? If Mr. Smith was willing to run through the fire to save you at the risk of his own life and getting terrible burns himself, how much more then will he be willing to come over and throw the football with you? That's the illustration of this passage. God has done the hard work at the most precious cost we can even imagine. So now that we're his friends, now that we're his children, man, he loves to save us. He loves to live for us and to mediate for us. Paul's point in, in, in speaking this way, guys, is to give us assurance, to give us confidence that God is going to save you from the wrath to come. He's already done the hardest thing possible to reconcile you to himself. And if he's willing to do that, then saving you on the judgment day is going to be easy and certain. The work that God begins, he always intends to complete. Always. And this is the promise that we have from this text. Once God has marked you out with his love, once he has united you with Christ, justified you by his grace, there is nothing in the heavens or on the earth that can separate you from that love and nothing that can prevent you from him saving you on the, on the great day. That's what Paul's trying to say here. Isn't that great? So let me wrap up with my last point. And actually, there's a couple different directions on this, really applying these first four truths because they're pretty amazing. Verse 11 shows us the first application. Look at it. Now that we've received this reconciliation as this great gift, what do we do? Exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The word there means to rejoice. That, that's what Christians ought to be, rejoicers, right? You, you feel that way? 
You feel like a rejoicer consistently? We ought to be because of these great truths. We rejoice. We glory in him. We live to praise him through Jesus Christ because he's done all the work necessary to reconcile us to himself. The war between God and us is over. That is a reason to rejoice, folks. We're at peace with him. To know that our sins are forgiven. To know for certain that we've been justified in his sight. To know for sure we've been reconciled in this relationship with him. That's a blessing beyond measure. How can we not rejoice? I sometimes wonder how, when I see Christians in church, I say, how can we not sing out? How can we not be joyful when we know these truths? I know life is hard. Look, I don't want to downplay the difficulties we're going through. Maybe you're going through a really hard time right now. But in all of life's challenges and sufferings, these things remain constant, don't they? They don't change regardless of our circumstance. And so we look to Christ. He's our great example. Did Jesus suffer? You bet. Was there a purpose in his suffering? Absolutely. So there's a purpose in our suffering, right? We looked at it. It produces endurance in us, perseverance. And that perseverance produces what? Character. And that character produces greater hope in us. Paul's made that clear. And so in our sufferings, really what we become, and, and you'll, you'll understand as you get older because I'm getting there, we become battle-tested warriors. Some of you know what I'm talking about. The ups and downs of life, the challenges, the obstacles, the suffering. But in all of that, Christ has been faithful. And so you become a battle-tested veteran. And all you're waiting for now is the final victory. And it will come. That's the promise that we have here. We've been justified by God. We've been reconciled to God. And therefore, we shall be saved from the coming wrath. That's the promise that we have. So for now, what do we do? We strive together, right? And we struggle together in the local church with our brothers and sisters. We, we walk with Jesus moment by moment. We, we're, we're daily, moment by moment, repenting and trusting. And we fall, right? We get back up again. And we decide, I'm not going to run away from God. I'm going to run towards Christ and towards his grace because we remember who we are in him, right? We remember the promises that he's given to us by his grace. That's the Christian life. And we do it over and over and over again until the day he calls us to our true home. And we see him face to face. And we enter into our eternal rest. And so we exult, right? In all of it, we rejoice. We glory in it. Because we've received the reconciliation and we have fellowship with God. It's amazing, you guys. Now, the second application that comes out of this, um, and it's really connected to the, the passage that we read for our call to worship from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Basically, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 17 to 21, he repeats this truth that God through Christ has reconciled us to himself, but then he adds these important phrases. He says, and God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. God has given us the message of reconciliation. That's you. You don't have to be a pastor or a missionary. You've been given the ministry of reconciliation and you've been given the message of reconciliation. God has gone to extreme lengths beyond what we can imagine to reconcile you to himself. And he says, great, you get it now? Now here, here's the ministry of reconciliation and what goes with that is the message of reconciliation. See, it's an awesome thing to 
to sit and meditate on, on what Christ has done for us, and we strongly recommend, you hear it all the time, we recommend that you constantly consider these things. But to the Corinthians, Paul adds this important caveat. He says, the message is great. Don't sit on it now. There's kingdom work to be done with that message. Don't sit on it. He says, you and I were ambassadors for Christ. We have the message. We carry it within us. The ministry and the message of reconciliation. So we can go to the lost people around us and we can say, look, look, I understand now. I I know what the word says. I know how God saves sinners like you and me. And there's no other way except through Jesus Christ. Right now, I know that you're an enemy of God, but you can be declared righteous in his sight and that you can be saved from the wrath of God on the day of judgment. You can say, friend, today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe this amazing news, this amazing gospel. Paul says, and this blows my mind, God making his appeal through knuckleheads like us. Isn't that amazing that he would use us like that way? God is making his appeal to the world that we might draw on his elect through people like us with the message of reconciliation. And so the gospel starts with God's wrath. We need to know that. That's where it starts. And by his grace, it ends with us being reconciled in relationship with him, from enemy to friend, and even more. May we always be found marveling at that story, at that truth that we read over and over again in Scripture. May we always be found worshiping and rejoicing because of it. And finally, may we always be found taking that ministry and that message outside the walls of this building. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, even now, uh, I pray that we would be processing and, and meditating upon that amazing truth that you have gone to incredible lengths, the cost of your own son, to reconcile us to yourself, that you have been the seeker of our souls. We praise you for that, Lord. You have been the one who has marked us out and sought after us and regenerated our hearts and changed our affections. And all we've done, Lord, is receive it. What a great truth, Lord. So we lift up your name this morning. We magnify you and we worship you because you're worthy. We exult, we rejoice, we glory in you because of your great love for us. And so even now, God, as we sing a couple more songs after the message, I pray that the truths of Paul's words in this text would speak to our hearts and we'd respond as we should. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.